All right, now that you're here, CJ, uh, my first question is, can you, <laughs> drum roll, uh, can you name for us, uh, how many prime ministers can you go back, trying to remember? And, and just to give you a warning, I only, I put down 10 names here because I was like, if he gets past that, then that's... Do you want me to actually... Yeah, give us a whirl. What do you got for us? Okay, well, we've got Morrison. Yep, that's Turnbull, one. Turnbull. Turnbull. Abbott. Abbott. Gillard. Mm. Rudd. Rudd. Rudd Gillard. They, they're kind of messed up. Yeah, that's, that's kind of in order. No one really knows what happened order? there. No, no. So after that, before that, rather. You're doing fine so far. Howard. Keating. Howard, Hawk. Hawk. Nah, Fraser. Fraser than Whitlam. All right, all right, all right, all right. That's as far back as I wrote down, though, because I was like, if you know that many, Menzies, then you've clearly established your nerdness. Yeah, Menzies was, Menzies and he was Menzies prime minister for a long time. So he was the longest Yeah, Menzies and and Howard was pretty close as well. Not even close to Menzies. He's the second longest serving. Yeah, Menzies is like seventeen years or something. I thought it was only like twelve years. Howard was 11 years. These was crazy long. Yeah, that's a crazy long time. So with the exception of CJ, uh, no one else could have listed, I think, you know, the last dozen prime ministers of Australia. Uh, So let's uh, make it a little easier. Can we, between us, can we identify four Australian gold medal winners? Gold medal in the Olympics? Yeah. Yeah. Kathy Freeman. Kathy Freeman, sure. Dawn Fraser, Ian Thorpe. Bradbury. Yeah. Okay. So we can. So we can. We can identify a, at least a handful of Australian gold medal winners. Uh, how about Nobel Prize winners? Oh my goodness. Australian Yeah. Yeah. No, not necessarily Australian. Just. Yeah, yeah, so we can we can come up with a, a short list of, of Nobel Prize winners as well. Pretty good. Uh, and now to scrape to scrape the barrel, um, does anyone want to list Academy Award winners? Who's won an Oscar? Uh, yeah, he won one because he got beat up by a bear. Um, Yeah, no, there's no, there's no Oscars for being short. Um, I don't know, I'm just teasing. <laughs> How is this the one that you guys are failing at? Prime Ministers, hell yes, all the way back to the dawn of time. Yeah, only the 50s. Meryl Street, yeah. All right. No, not at all. Not, not at all. Um, I'm preaching about how vapid you all are. No, that's not true. Um, here's the thing, though. The most successful, even the most intelligent and the most highly paid and the most followed on Instagram, which is a whole other level of fame that makes you an embarrassment. Um, these are not the people that make the most significant difference in our lives. Um, now, there are some people there, even in the list that I've said, you know, like prime ministers and or Nobel Prize, Prize winners, or whatever, who make a significant difference in society, perhaps. But to me, they're not the people who make the most significant difference. The truly inspirational and impactful people in my life are the ones that are around me, the ones that I connect with, the ones that I uh, relate to. Uh, so when I think about people who make a huge difference, I rarely think of a Prime Minister of Australia, but I do think about a person who listened to me when I really needed someone. Uh, you know, like there have been times even in the last month where I've been like, I just need to talk to someone 
And it's the people on, that I go to call them, they're the people that make the biggest difference in my life. Uh, or it's a teacher. Um, we've got a bunch of teachers in our uh, community, but it's a teacher that says something. And it just encourages a person in a way that, that changes something about who they are. I, uh, in fact, I had a student come up to me in the last couple of weeks who I didn't even know who they were. They were just a kid at a school that I spoke at once who was an atheist. Um, but they said the way that you spoke about Jesus and made a difference in her life. And it made her, it changed the way, like the university course that she applied into and that she's now almost finishing. And like it made her think differently about the world. And it was really weird. Like I'm at a cafe and she's come over to me to say thank you to me. Still don't even know who she is. Um, uh, I, I was just doing like a question and answer type thing. But to her, the, the thing that really impacted her was being able to look at, um, to look at Jesus differently um, had an impact on her life. Uh, because there was some actual connection that made a difference, not some, you know, like it wasn't completely removed from her. I think the people who make a difference are the ones who will lovingly tell you the truth. I think there are some people who tell you the truth, but not so lovingly. But it's the people who lovingly tell you the truth that make a difference. It's the people who are cheering you on during the worst, most challenging periods of your life. I have friends, uh, and I say this often, I say it takes a long time to make old friends. There are some people you just know because of how long they've been there with you that they're going to be with, there with you in the future as well. And it doesn't matter what challenge you come up against. These are the people, who, they're your people. The people who make a huge difference are not famous actors, even politicians, sports stars. No, they're the people who turn up when you need them. They're the ones who look after your kids. They're the ones who you don't clean up your house for. And they're the people who love you and sacrifice for you and lay down their lives for you, uh, willingly, lovingly, uh, for your benefit. And this is the kind of person that Jesus was. This is the type of person that Jesus was. Because uh, he loved people unfailingly, even when they rejected him. So in Romans, like it just says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's when we were at our worst, most distant place from God, that God is uh, becoming flesh and living out a life and being persecuted and killed for us because he loves us. And it wasn't enough to make a difference from a distance. He became flesh. He became Christ. He became incarnate and made a difference by becoming near to us. I want to talk a little bit uh, today about how the early church grew. Because there's lots of like ideas around what kind of motivated that. And obviously the Spirit of God was moving and there was something miraculous and radical about the growth of the early church. But there was also something very mundane and um, very humble about the growth of the early church. And I want to look at that in particular. Uh, I, I got a quote here, or just some really some statistics from a guy named Robert, uh, Robert Wilkin. Uh, he's a professor of history at the University of Virginia. And he says, at the end of the first century, there were fewer than 10,000 Christians in the Roman Empire. The population at the time uh, of you know the, of that era, of that of the world there uh, numbered around some sixty million people, which meant that Christians made up one hundredth of one percent. So it's zero point zero zero one seven percent, according to the figures uh, of a contemporary sociologist. And then a hundred years later, by the year two hundred, that number uh, they reckon had increased to a little more than two hundred thousand. So it's still it's a tiny tiny number, really. Under 1%, 0.36%. Here's the thing though. 50 years later, by the year 250, 
the number had risen to more than a million, which was 2% of the population. And then two generations later, by the year 300, Christians made up 10% of the population, which was approximately 6 million people. So there is this, just this persistent, humble kind of growth in the church. And then there is this explosive period of growth where they go from 10,000 um, to 6 million. And it wasn't because of famous people. We can look up this era and we don't get a long list of famous people. We don't get, um, you know, like after kind of Paul and then there's a few kind of important figures, most of the historians, so we know who they are because they wrote books about what happened. But it's very rarely this famous person did this famous thing and as a result this incredible change happened. Uh, And one of the things people say is that uh, it was, you know, the martyrs that made a big difference in that era. But, like, it's kind of exaggerated. The number of Christians that were killed during that era era is not actually that significant. You you cannot attribute the explosive growth of the church exclusively to the stories of the martyrs and how that may have inspired people. There has to be something else going on. Here's the thing. It wasn't just the church's response to persecution that made it incredible. It was the church's everyday consistent loving actions for hundreds of years that actually made true, true transformation. So I want to, I have this, um, a section of a book written by Leith Anderson that I would like to read to you. Um, one or two of you might have heard this before uh, many years ago, uh, but I read this to my students at school because I want them to understand what it was that precipitated the radical, incredible growth of the early church. And this is just one small element of that, but I'd like to share it with you. Uh, It says, I want to share about the culture of the Roman Empire in the first three centuries. It was a time of terrible conditions. Most people did not live in the stone buildings that have survived for the archaeologist's study. The vast majority of people lived in wooden tenements that were filthy, disease-ridden, ugly places. And so I've traveled a little bit uh, in in Turkey and have seen, like I've been to Ephesus and um, Troy and like a whole bunch of those kind of places. And you see the ruins of the city. So you walk down the street in Ephesus and there are stone buildings and facades. There's a a library that they've kind of propped up the front of it still. So there's nothing behind it. It's just the front facade of the libraries there. And then there's this huge amphitheater there as well, which is pretty well still there. So it's incredible. Um, I actually saw Elton John play a concert in this amphitheater. I know it's weird, right? But uh, I turned up and it's like Elton John's playing. Like, yes, we will buy tickets and see Elton John play in the stadium at Ephesus. Uh, So it was like, it was wonderful though to see it with thousands of people crammed into it to get an idea for what it could have been like. Um, You know, when Paul was preaching there and then got run out of town by the, the, um, I think it was the silversmiths or something. Like, Like, just incredible to see that. But you don't see any of the other structures, the kind of, place that normal people would have lived because it's all gone now. And in those kind of places, so in some of those stone buildings, there is one place in Ephesus, actually, there is like a a bathhouse and there's like a a place, like a toilet. Um, It's kind of weird. It's like a long slab of of, um, rock with holes in it. Like, I'm not even kidding. Um, And it was weird. Like, there's this trough of water that would run through it. And if you were really rich, you'd sit at the, the, the end where the water was fresh, kind of. Um, but it was like open. There were no like doors or stalls or anything. Anyway, I get sidetracked. Uh, the reason I say that is to say uh, there was no sewerage system, generally speaking, in these cities. And the way they dealt with sewerage was to throw it out the window. 
pretty gross. Which is why the rent uh, was always higher the higher up you went. So if you were on the second floor, the rent was going to be much um, uh, higher than the rent on the bottom floor because the guy on the bottom floor had to deal with sewage coming past his window all day. Often, there were huge fires. We know most about the first century fire under the regime of Nero. Um, I don't know if you know anything about Nero. I'm going to jump in there because Nero was a particularly psychotic, crazy person. Um, like he, he was completely insane. Uh, like, so there was one point where Nero, he beat his wife, to his pregnant wife to death. So he committed adultery and she got pregnant. I think it was a different baby. Anyway, she end, he ended up beating her to death. And then because he was so sad about that, he found a boy. Um, I think his name was Sporus that looked like his wife, castrated the boy and then married the boy. Uh, and then at another point, Nero actually got married and he wore the veil. He became a woman in that, like he got married several times. And in one of them, he was the woman and in another one, it was a pedophilic relationship. And like, he was mad, like fully mad. And uh, so there, were, there was a big rumor going around when the big fire of Rome happened that Nero had just burned down a whole bunch of the city because he wanted to build a new building, uh, make it a, a more beautiful Rome. And the easiest way to do that was just to burn half of it down. So the rumour is, is that he was sitting around kind of eating grapes, listening to people play music whilst the city was burning. Now, when that rumour got out, he decided to counter that rumour by saying, no, 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 clearly the Christians lit the fire. So he blamed the Christians. Uh, and you can imagine how well that was received by the, um, the population of Rome. So the Christians got persecuted. So Nero would hold parties and he would use Christians as street lamps. He would like like, there was a time of terrible persecution, but he was a complete psycho, and I'm pretty sure, I think it was the Senate or the, you know, the government basically wanted to get rid of him. So that period of history had lots and lots of emperors because most of them were crazy. So kind of bounced from one to the other. Uh, here's the thing, though. So we know a lot about the first century um, fire of Nero. Uh, however, in Rome and in other cities, uh, there was lots of times where they got just destroyed by fire or people got dislocated and had to leave the city. Um, and so what would happen after that is the Roman army would go out to all the people who'd left the city and they'd round them up and they'd bring them back into the city again because they wanted um, that close proximity, that metropolis that was part of the Roman way of life. So they would force march people to repopulate their cities. So at times in Roman cities, back to reading um, Leith Anderson's thing, uh, there were many as, as many as 16 different quarters with 16 different languages because, uh, and people couldn't understand each other. So the cities were these vibrant metropolis, uh, and, but there were lots of little ghetto areas where people, and they had no way to understand each other. Um, so people would come in and they'd try to find someone who spoke their language uh, and then... Um, the Romans, as they brought people in, they would just take people away from their families and their children and they would just put them back in the city. And like it was a real time of upheaval, not dissimilar to the kind of dislocation of people that we have nowadays, where people are separated from their families and they are force marched and put into temporary housing. And like this is like this is something that's that's still happening today. Uh, divorce was so common that analysts say that marriage virtually disappeared as an institution. Abortion was far more common in the Roman world than it is in North America today. And understand, this was a time when there was no anesthesia. So abortions were done whilst you were awake by physicians who barely knew what they were doing a millennium and a half before the advent of germ theory. 
in a very long time before the invention of soap. So that made that the, the, there was often rampant infection and often women were left sterile. The most common form of birth control was infanticide because then you can wait until the birth of the child to see if it was male or female. And they killed their female babies in huge numbers, mostly by exposure. They left them out in the forests in the cold of the winter night or took them down to the seashore in the height of the summer and just left them there to die. There were plagues that went through that at times destroyed as much as a third of the population of major metropolitan areas across the Roman Empire. There were diseases, some that we don't consider all that serious today, like measles, but also bubonic plague and smallpox. And whenever this happened, the standard approach was to evacuate the city, physicians and all. People would leave their children behind. They would leave their ailing parents behind. They just left. They wouldn't even go home. They would get as far out of town as they could. And many people that were left behind died, not of the plague, but simply of neglect. They couldn't be fed. They couldn't be provided for. It was not a very pleasant place to live. The social consequences of Roman pagan behavior started to spin out until within a relatively short time, even in the first century, but increasingly in the second century, there was an enormous shortage of females because they had killed the babies. That caused social havoc, which will come as a surprise to no one, um, that if you don't have very many women and you have a whole bunch of men, that all of a sudden that, uh, you know, that's a problem. So when immigrants came into cities, the Christians welcomed them. This is where we start to see what was unique about the early church that uh, precipitated that explosive growth. When immigrants came into cities, the Christians welcomed them. They didn't worry too much whether they were legal or illegal. They gave them jobs and homes, places to stay and food. And the Christians resisted divorce. The Christians discouraged and did not practice abortion. Not only did the Christians not practice infanticide, but they would search out the woods and along the seashore every day until they found abandoned female babies and they would bring them into their homes and raise them to become Christians. An astonishing thing happened. Within a generation or two, the church began to cover the female market in the Roman Empire. They had all the women of marriageable age. Girls were getting married as young as 11 in the Roman Empire. I looked this up. I spent a bit of time researching this because I didn't want to just read this out and then find out that it was just some kooky weirdo's opinion. Um, turns out that uh, this guy, Leith Anderson, is, the Dr. Leith Anderson is actually... Uh, very well regarded, but I did look this up nonetheless, and the legal marriaging age in Rome was 12, not 11. But what would happen is lots of girls were getting married before that, and um, the way they would justify it would be to say, you can get married and consummate that and everything, it, won't, it just won't be legal until they turn 12. Gross. Yeah, yeah, super gross. Uh, and it's really weird, like they're able to actually figure out what age girls were when they got married because there's a whole bunch of records and stuff. And on the basis of that, they're able to determine the kind of average age that people were getting married. And in the church, it was like 50% or 48% of girls um, didn't get married before they were 18, which was a huge improvement on what was going on in the Roman Empire more broadly speaking. In, in every age category, the Christian girls ended up getting married later. 
Many of them were not allowed to leave the house from the time they were born until they were married. And then they were kept in the house after they were married because they might be stolen. It's pretty crazy. The church insisted that you had to be at least 18 years old before you married and insisted that your husband had to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Um, That's not entirely... They might have insisted that, but the research that I did indicated that there was still, especially where the more wealthy and powerful a woman was, the more likely it was that she wouldn't marry a Christian um, because to marry significantly lower than her status was a big problem culturally and marrying you know, to a higher status often meant marrying to a non-Christian. Um, but what it did is it slowly and pervasively changed the empire's attitude towards Christianity. And Roman men converted to Christianity by the thousands and tens of thousands because it was the only way they were ever going to get a wife. (laughs) When the plagues came, Christians did something breathtaking. They stayed home. They didn't run. They fed the elderly, took care of the children and the sick, and many of them died because of what they did. But when the plague was over and all the relatives and pagans that left came back, they discovered Um, that those that had been abandoned had become believers in Jesus Christ because they knew they could trust the Christians. They could trust the church and they knew they couldn't trust their own families. Now, when you went to school, you were taught that Constantine and a series of decisions around 311 to 313 after a vision declared Christianity to be the legal religion of the Roman Empire. And that is what Christianized the Roman Empire. Uh, In a book by Rodney Stark, a professor at the University of Washington, called The Rise of Christianity, published by Princeton University Press. He argues that this decision of Constantine is not the reason the Roman Empire became Christian. He explains that it was the behaviour of the Christians over long periods of time, which was relevant and related to what was happening in their culture, which transformed the Roman Empire. It's the law of compounding. Constantine declared Christianity the real religion of the Roman Empire because he had no other political choice. The Christians now outnumbered the pagans because paganism had collapsed under its own sinful weight and Christianity had simply been Christianity. So the question I have is, what would it mean, what does it mean for our community to reflect this kind of transforming generosity and kindness and sacrifice that was reflected for these hundreds of years of the church? What is it for us to just humbly, consistently and persistently reflect the gospel in such a way that eventually people have to see that there is something unique and beautiful and different about Jesus? Because I know I don't have great sporting potential, sadly. Uh, And I, I almost certainly do not have a grand future in politics. I'm definitely not going to win a Nobel Prize. Or an Oscar. But I do still have uh, the potential inside of me to be incredibly kind and generous and humble. It's, it's potential. <laughs> but it's there. I can listen to people's stories. I can encourage them. I can be faithful in all seasons. I can share the love of Jesus with people I meet. I can be peaceful and patient and joyful. And I can stretch myself and I can grow and I can work out my salvation daily. And I think that it's the working out of that salvation daily. It's the working out of that salvation daily that helps us to be a positive witness in the world. 
See, the early Christian church didn't grow because it made a bold social statement about the immorality of the empire. The early Christian church grew because it consistently and persistently lived out a different type of morality. It lived out a morality that said human life is valuable. It lived out a morality that said immigrants uh, and refugees and asylum seekers are welcome and we will house them and clothe them and and, uh, employ them and help them and serve them. It's a, a persistent, consistent morality that just acted differently, even in times of persecution, lived out a different set of values because of Jesus that ultimately transformed the, uh, the Roman world. And like history since then kind of would indicate that Christianity has grown pretty rapidly. In 1 Corinthians, I want to uh, read you a section of scripture here, 1 Corinthians 9 24 to 27, it says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. So when I talk about persistent, consistent, humble acts of kindness and generosity and servant heartedness and all that stuff, uh, I don't mean just kind of lazily working it out as we go along. Like what Paul's saying here is he goes into strict training. Now, I don't know if you've ever met someone who is in strict training, but they live differently. They get up at a different time. They eat differently. They do different stuff. They control every aspect of their life in order to achieve the the best possible time in that race. There's no accident or coincidence or randomness in their preparation. They go into strict training. So as disciples, to be in strict training means it has to be intentional. It can't just be casual. It can't just be occasional. Paul says that that he strikes a blow to his body. This is really important because a lot of the time when things aren't right or when we're not getting what we want or we're not moving forward or our faith is really challenging, we go, well, it's the devil's fault or it's our culture's fault or it's my spouse's fault or my child's fault or I just I'm tired and I'm busy and I'm, we find every possible reason to blame everything else in our universe except for striking a blow to our own body because we know that it's us that is the problem. Paul doesn't say, I strike a blow out into the heavenlies. I, I attack the demon. I destroy. No, no, he says, I beat my own body. It's definitely my own body that's making me fat and lazy. It's definitely my own choices that are doing that. Uh, I've said this before, but I blame Nick. I bought running shoes and I have not in any way gotten fitter after I bought those shoes. Because as it turns out, buying running shoes does not make you an athlete and it does not make you fit and it doesn't make you go to bed at a better time or eat better. Or, uh, you know, I I, I prepared this sermon at the gym and there's this kid... um, uh, in the cafe downstairs. What do you do at the gym, Jeff? Yeah, and there's this guy uh, that I taught at, um, at Bergman who I see almost every week and he's all sweaty and fit and I hate him. And he turns up <laughs> and, and, he's, and he's like, why don't you come upstairs? And I'm like, I don't even know what's upstairs. What, there's another floor here? with What happens up there? <laughs> it's where the cardio machines 
Yeah, it's where the cardio machines are. And I can't even walk up the stairs. I need to have a break. You see, because going into strict training means more than just buying the right shoes or even turning up at church. Although occasionally it'd be good if some more people did that too. Uh, You know, like we have to do more than just get by or to just survive. We have to actively, aggressively pursue growth. You see, and this isn't about condemning others. This is about personal growth. Paul doesn't beat everybody else for where they're at. He beats his own body in order to prepare for the race. He encourages and spurs other people on by running faster. Yeah. 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 There's a guy who just, um, who very controversially broke the two hour marathon record. Uh, controversially because he had fancy shoes that actually turned out to be mostly springs. Um, they had like carbon, like everyone's like, yeah, that was cool. And it's an incredible achievement, but your shoes are made of springs, like carbon fiber <laughs> springs. And they got to be illegal for like actual events. Cause mate, that's it, whatever. Uh, he also had pace, like people to pace with him. So it was like, I think 40 or 50 other runners that like literally made like a flying V in front of him so that he would have less air resistance yeah. to try and break this record. Yeah. You see what happened though, is, is that together they were able to make this one guy break a world record. That's not officially a world record because he cheated. I cheated is the wrong word. Um, but, but it's like incredible though that, 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 that what happens when you get together and you collectively take responsibility for your growth. Um, but I just I want to point out here that when Paul says we need to get somewhere, he says he beats his own body. He's not, he's not attacking someone else. And in the church, we made a, a business out of trying to tell everybody else how they need to behave instead of beating our own body. You want to make a bold, incredible statement about marriage to our culture? Here's a trick. Stay married. You don't need to have a rally to tell everybody else um, that they're doing something wrong. You You need to meet with your spouse and love them and care for them until death do you part. That's how you make a bold statement about marriage. That's what happened in the early church. They made a bold statement about the value of life. By gathering up the babies um, that had been left to die and raising them as their own. They made a bold statement about caring for the poor by taking in refugees who had no language and no, and no opportunity and saying, we will look after you and we will um, treat you as family. They made a bold statement about their treatment of the disabled by welcoming them in and their treatment of the elderly by caring for them. I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after that, I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. If you want to be an exceptional athlete, you need to be prepared to exercise. If you want to be an exceptional Christian, you also need to be prepared to exercise. You see, if you want to be a more joyful person, you need to be prepared to exercise that during times of trial. It's easy to be joyful when you win the lotto. It's easy to be joyful when you have a day off. It's easy to be, you know, like, no, no, no. That's not exercise. Exercising is when things don't go right and you exercise joy. You say, you know what? There is still something beautiful and worthy of praise. It's exercise when you come together and we don't have a big screen and lots of lights and a 12-piece band um, or, or someone who remembers the song. Um, you know, like it's under those conditions that you get to exercise your heart of worship because God deserves right. praise. If you want to be more generous, exercise generosity. Like we all, we talk about being generous. 
Uh, and Ed Delph used to say this funny thing. He used to say, and look, we don't take a weekly offering here because it'd be super awkward. We just ask people to give. Um, but he said this thing that I thought was really funny. He said, take the wallet of the person next to you and give like you know you should. You know, like we, we talk about generosity, but we don't actually love generosity all that much. It's an, it's, we, we need to exercise. So even if you're a generous person, what does it mean to exercise that, to stretch in generosity? What does it mean to stretch in terms of service? What does it mean to stretch and grow in terms of patience? Because I promise you, there are opportunities every single day where your patience gets tested. Whether or not you choose to exercise in that moment is what makes the difference. Will you exercise patience in the face of truly irritating children? <laughs> yeah, the struggle's so real. Will you exercise patience in the middle of the night when the little pitter-patter of cold feet makes it into your room? Will you exercise that patience? When a person comes to you at work and they order from Amazon whilst they're standing in your bookstore, will you exercise your patience? I did, and then I complained about it on Facebook. <laughs> Be prepared for God to give you lots of exercise opportunities. No one gets fit from sitting on the couch. So when these opportunities arise, you need to rise to the occasion. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is a bold, radical, evangelistic strategy. Jesus says, love each other and everybody will know. And I think that the church right now, we have a bit of a crisis in that our evangelistic strategy is much more condemning and much more toxic than simply, I am going to love and I'm going to love and I'm going to love. And people are like, oh, no, we need to be harder on sin. We need to be more. I'm like, well, Jesus with the woman caught in adultery, he said, your problem is not with me. I don't condemn you either. Your problem is not with God because I represent God. I am the exact representation of his being and I'm saying we're not condemning you. He loves this woman and he's saying to her, go away and don't do this anymore because it will probably get you killed. Turns out that committing adultery in this culture um, is actually going to literally get you killed, but it also kills your relationships and it kills your reputation. And perhaps if you're a woman in the first century, it also ruins your opportunity to, you know, eat and survive. Um, Go and don't do this anymore. his, His posture towards this woman is one where he protects her, where he loves her. He doesn't condemn her. And you command, I give you love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would exercise great uh, kindness and patience and gentleness and also self-control. That's the, uh, the most miserable of the fruit of the Spirit. I pray that you would give us great self-control that we would beat our bodies, that we would uh, not just strike aimlessly at the air, that we would make sure that we grow and that that in that we are a beautiful, powerful witness of humility um, and a beautiful, powerful witness of love, that people would see that and be drawn into that. 
That just as uh, in those early days of the church, people were drawn in because they were in need, need of comfort and shelter and support and protection. I pray that we would be a, a sanctuary for people. And not a place where they feel condemned or attacked, but a place where they feel welcomed and loved and supported. And in that, that they would join the race. Uh, not because they've been bullied, but because they are inspired to live differently, to work out their salvation daily. I pray that we would uh, inspire one another to join in that race, that we would help each other to um, take great steps. And that because of that, your kingdom would come here on earth as it is in heaven. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.